truth, honor, loyalty, character. Welcome to the Long Green Line podcast. This is Maddie Arnold guiding you through conversations about Coach Joe Newton's life, legacy, and his impact on the eternity of coaching. We're going to be digging into masculinity, love, and of course, how cross-country is like life. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Long Green Line podcast. We are very excited to be talking to Coach Charlie Kern today. Charlie, how are you doing? Good. I'm uh, happy, I'm healthy, and I feel terrific. It's nice to see you virtually. We last saw each other a little bit of this summer. I got to visit the the camp you're at. So why don't you start with the camp, CK Running Camps, and let's work backwards to your whole life in running. Ooh, okay. So I am fortunate enough to have some friends who make suggestions, and I let that percolate for a little while. And one suggestion was made a number of years ago when I got out of coaching was to do some things with kids in the summertime. And the primary goal at first was to work with the York kids. As Mr. Newton decided that he was not able to put in that kind of time in the summer any longer, someone needed to. And even though I was not coaching during the school year, that gave me my opportunity to be involved with the boys in the summer and help prepare them. And so that evolved into more and more kids from the neighborhood and Elmhurst and other communities. And it has grown to be a really cool thing. We just finished our 13th year of that camp. And every year we get a few hundred kids coming in each and every day on a bicycle and they're happy and their parents are happy. And we give them some running instruction and opportunity to be with other kids their age and be outside. And in particular, the last two summers, how critical that was to social development, social, emotional well-being. And so we were really, the last two years, very seriously fulfilling needs of the kids in the community. So Charlie Kern was the assistant coach during in the movie, The Long Green Line. And Coach Newton was in his 50th year coaching, and Charlie was in maybe your fifth or sixth year, I think. By the time of the movie, I was probably in my fifth, sixth year. Yeah, that's about right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, Charlie, you have a unique relationship because you started when you were in college. You had your student teaching with Coach Newton, and then you took a little time away, and then you eventually got hired by York High School and then hired by Coach Newton to be the assistant on the track team or on the cross country and track teams. So let's start with your running career. Collegiately, you ran at University of Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and then before that, what was the path like? Was uh, running around in the neighborhood. That's what got me started. Running, playing tag. Uh, we were outside all the time. Mom said, when the light comes on, come in the house. Uh, so the street light went on, we went in the house. Between uh, when I got up and when that light went on, I was out running around. And I realized that uh, I got some status because the sixth graders were picking me as a third grader to be in their group and they knew I could run fast. And so I officially started in seventh grade running on the track team and kind of haven't stopped since. It's been a a beautiful thing. I ran in middle school. In high school, I had good coaching, gave me great opportunities. And I was very serious about seizing those opportunities to try to get myself in a position to be able to find a school that would be willing to pay the freight. And I found that at the University of Kentucky. I also found my wife at the University of Kentucky who 
grew up on the same street that Mr. Newton lived on in a town just south here of Elmhurst. You ran in, in New York State, if I remember correctly. So high school in New York, scholarship to Kentucky, found your wife there. And then can you throw in just the, the interesting twin story that relates to the movie a little bit? Very interesting thread line there with twins. My wife is a identical twin. When the time came for our second pregnancy, we were fortunate that it wasn't just one baby, it was two. And so we had fraternal twins and the stars of the movie were a set of twins as well. So there seemed to be a kind of a theme going there that was, was quite interesting for all of us. Comes those common spaces to have conversations outside the realm of running and just living and talking to the parents about parenting twins because we had twins and then have the dynamic of Mrs. Kern and her relationship with her twin and things we wanted to watch out for. And it just was a, just another awesome human layer to a phenomenal story. So your wife is a twin, your kids are twins, and you coached two twins in the movie. So can you tell us, like, what's your first impression of Coach Newton? As you mentioned, I'm from New York State, and after the state, I won the state championship in track and field in the 1600, more commonly known as the mile. Not exactly, but we call it the mile. And what do you do when the high school state season is over you know, you're looking for some post state meet opportunities and there was a meet here in illinois called the keebler championship or keebler meet or whatever it was called at that time and i got a phone number and i called mr newton and i asked if i could get in i was the new york state champion i'm looking for other opportunities and he said how fast did you run and i said I, I mean i was a state champion i went, I went 413 i you know I, I beat everybody i'm looking for more opportunities he goes ah too slow sorry <laughs> and so that was the end of the conversation the first time we talked the second time we talked was the last day of summer cross country practice in 1993 and i had been encouraged by some people like go there go talk to him find out if he's looking for some help and i nervous and i don't know i don't know so i finally waited till the last day and i approached him he was sitting in a chair and had a student desk in front of the school and the boys were running around and like, all right okay summon up the courage and i walked up and i fumbled with my words because here's this olympic coach i read about him when i was in high school now it's you know six five six years down the road but He's still iconic and blah, 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 fumbled. And finally, I just said, look, I'm going to be student teaching here in the fall. I was wondering if I could help out in some way. And my introduction to a man with vigor and zest for life was birthed right in front of me as he pushed the desk away, stood up, hands in the air, and was yelling at his manager, you know, and I'm not going to yell right here as, as much because I'll scare people in my own household. But he was like, Curtis, can you believe it? This man came to me from God. <laughs> and I'm standing there like, I, I just came from Glen Ellen. I don't know what you're talking about. But that was my entree into his world. He greatly appreciated someone wanting to help him. He had for all these years, managers and other people and students that he 
Khan to help him out, but he never had an assistant in cross country until I was hired then, this is 1993, when I was hired in 1999 to come back. I was the first person contractually to be an assistant coach uh, with him and all those teams and, and, and certainly the numbers had gotten you know, rather large because people wanted to run for that Olympic coach. So that was my first experience and it was a great one and one I will never ever forget. He so, made me feel welcomed. And I think that that's something that's really important about him and his legacy. He made, every, I'm, I guess maybe there were some people he didn't, that they felt he didn't make him welcome, but he, he was open-armed and would help anyone. And he started that w with me on that day in August of 1993. And so did you coach, that was your student teaching term? So I coached, I guess. I read his meeting notes for the second shift. It was great because I could lead the second shift meeting. So what happens at York is there were two shifts. All the best kids would be in the first shift. And then other kids who wanted to be on the team or who were younger, who couldn't get that privilege of their eighth period off so that they could start cross-country practice. So there would be two shifts. So my job then became running the second shift meeting and uh, and then getting the kids outside to begin participating in the workout and that 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 was the extent i i didn't create anything i didn't uh write a workout i didn't have a plan i understood what my role was right you you get to be a mouthpiece for me while i'm outside and so that's that's what i did but i also learned a tremendous amount by seeing how he structured things seeing what emphasis he made in particular on the mental side of things and the, the motivational piece. You, you have to bring a lot of enthusiasm if you're going to ask a kid to try to run 25 times 400. Like, why would I do that? That's ludicrous. Right? But he inspired to kids to accept that challenge. Yes, this is difficult, but yes, you can do it. I believe in you and I know you can do it. And so let's go get to it. And I, you know, watching that, I like, ah, I'm onto something here. This is very valuable to meet an athlete, a, a young man in a space where he is and, you know, draw him into himself, right? But also into the program and the special worth that this young man has inside this amazing, successful program. And so what do you remember about his workouts? I know that one of the things I always noticed when we were filming, you know, I'd come early. So he would be, maybe it was like noon. And I think the first shift started around like, I want to say like 1.30 or 1.45. Yeah, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. Maybe two o'clock, somewhere in there. And Mr. Newton would get to work at like 9 a.m. or something for that two o'clock practice. And he was very ritualistic about a lot of the things he did. And one of his rituals that I caught him doing multiple times was he had a, a red pen, handwritten piece of paper with last year's workout on the exact day of practice as today's workout. And he would have another blank sheet of paper right next to it. And he would verbatim handwrite the exact same workout from last year onto today's paper. So did he give you one of those papers? Yep. Yeah, so, and I could not lose it because it's going to be needed next year. So, and it was also a space where on the on the left column would be all his notes and, and information that he wanted kids to have for the next week, whether it's a meet coming up or whatever it was. And then the right column was a record of what kids did. 
So if it's 25 times 400, the kids would have to keep track of what was your average, 68.4. And, and, and so that was as valuable of a tool I think he had. He didn't have to reinvent what he wanted to say. He, he's, he created that script and he was ready with it and would use it each year. But I think what was in the right column and, and forever talking about what is the objective of training. The objective of training is to get better. How do you know if you're getting better if you don't keep track of what you're doing? And so he would have that. And you could go, he could go back for years. Like, here's what Marius Bakken did. Here's what, you know, Ron Lichty did in the late 60s and early 70s. Like, if you do the same thing, you're going to get the same result. Uh, but it was also scary when kids weren't doing the same thing as the previous season. Like, they're going to catch it <laughs> because we're not going to win if, if we don't start to match these workouts of the past. And so you were kind of the first digital native that ever entered the Newton space. He was very clearly a digital immigrant. And his, his greatest joke was that his red pen was his technology. And beyond that technology, he didn't need anything else. I'm wondering, did he sort of loop you in that, hey, can you put this in a computer or something for me there? Come here, Charlie. Did he ever no, try to get you to automate? No, he, he turned that over to managers and, and you know, a kid who could type that they would, you know, record in a, in a neater fashion. But as we moved to, you know, discs and things like that, that that became a place for a young man who can't run and, you know, and talk and walk or, and chew gum, right? That kind of, you can't walk and chew gum, but you're great with the computer. And that made that kid feel very special and important to the overall operation. And he let him know how important this is and would get on that kid's case in the same way he would get on the case of an athlete who wasn't meeting his expectation. Hey, I need that now. I need you to perform. You need to get this data to me. And, you know, those, those kids were, you know, dealing with a demanding person, which they're going to have to deal with later on, you know, and meeting whatever investment deadlines or research deadlines that that kid was going to do as an adult. So he, he gave everybody great life experience, managers included. Yeah, a lot of coaches, especially the, the a lot of the feedback that we've gotten since the movie came out is, you know, the movie's great with this emotional story and everything, but what about the workouts? What are the X's and O's of coaching that, you know, bring his team to that level of success? And I'm wondering how you would respond to that. What are the X's and O's of the Newton program? So they're in books. People can read it. They, they, they can, you know, find successful cross-country coaching was like the last book that was out there. So it's it's not a secret. And he would say it, he goes like, the workouts in and of themselves don't matter, which I think, like many things he would say, was a, a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah, yeah, they, they do matter. But to him, what was most important is the struggle that a person would have to go through during that workout to come out on the other side. And in going through that and coming out on the other side, what can stop you, man? Like, look, here's what you've done. Look at, look at the, the week. So, you know, a typical week as we move into 
late September and early October is some kind of long repeat on Monday. And then, you know, three times mile, four times mile. There's even a five times mile that he had. I, I can't bring myself to five times mile yet with these kids, but we've gotten four. And then on Tuesday, the very next day, 20 times 200. And the, with a reducing interval. So your rest interval is a minute for the first five. And then the next five is 45 seconds. And then the next five, it's 30. And then the last, how it really works out, the last four, you have 15 seconds. That's enough time to get across the line, put your hands on your knees. And then Mr. Noon's yelling like, get back on the line. Because you 15 seconds, you got to get on. And then you got to go again. And being able to run that in 30 to 33 seconds across all of those sets, like, of course you go to a meet. I've had this conversation with Jim Hedman, who ran for Mr. Newton and is an assistant coach now with me. He's like, the, the meet was an easy day. We're only going to run two miles on the warm-up. We're going to run a three-mile race and then maybe a two-mile cool-down. Right? We couldn't wait for race day because it was going to be shorter. Right? And, and that you know, law of supercompensation is, is really what it is. So as people want to know, like, you can Google it. You can you can find those workouts. But he would always say it's it's helping kids to understand that they can do more than they think they can do. And he was masterful at that. And you know, once he started having having you know some degree of success, then you know people don't question it. They like oh, the, you, and you just walk into the program as freshman and this is what you do as a freshman. And now as a sophomore through senior, you get more work and we're expecting you to run faster. And here is the record of what you did as a sophomore and a junior. And so now you're a senior and we need you to step up because you got to lead this team. And so I, I, I know people want to know specific workouts and, you know, there, there's a lot of them. I think a great workout that everybody can put in their program is segmented running. And, and I asked him about segment run. I go, why, why, why are you breaking up this run? And, you know, it's 52 minutes, but it's one, one, two, two, three, three, you know, five fives, two eights, and then coming back down to, you know, whatever the combination was to equal 52 minutes or 49 minutes or whatever he felt belonged in the recipe that day. And he said, look, if I send people out on a 50 minute run, <laughs> the first, whatever 20 minutes is going to be seven minute pace and then maybe down to 6 30 pace and then maybe at the end somebody starts pushing and they get angry with each other and then they run like 5 40 in the last mile that's not helping us that is not going to help us but if i put down one one two two and what happens in between each of those segments is that there's a one minute walk so a kid gets a chance to kind of recover and then boom you got to get back up and run fast he's like look no matter what you have to be able to run fast. And so if you need to give a kid a one-minute walk, give him a one-minute walk and then get back out there and all the running of 52 minutes, 49 minutes, whatever it was, that was fast running. So now, you know, you add it all up pace-wise, it might be 510 of 49 minutes of running. That's way better, Coach Kern, than sending the kid out on a 50-minute run where they're going to get very little training effect. So, like, there was a little manipulation with the math, and the kids didn't know what was happening. They just kind of were grateful for the break. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you would tell them that. Like, look, I'm going to ask you to run continual, but that one minute and that five minute and whatever, you better run your tail off. You better run your tail off. So tell me about the rules today. Have they changed at all? Rules have to change. What We, we know that. Like, the, what, what is one constant change? And uh, kids are are different today. The demand, the academic demands of kids in 2021 versus 2001, it's, it's night and day. We, we live in a community where there's a tremendous amount of success that the parents experience and they demand that their kids do that, not just athletically, but most importantly, academically. So when I started in the department, I think there was maybe maybe one AP class in the social studies department. There was an honors in, in junior level U.S. history. You might have even taken that class with Ms. Davis. Like they're, they're just, that just wasn't there. And that's not the case now. At York High School, a freshman can take an AP course. So guess what? They do. As the parents are like, all right, we got to get ahead of the curve and we're starting this AP track now. So I can't, I, I can't make the same demands because the academic world has become incredibly intrusive in kids' lives. Whether it's good or bad, I'm not here to judge that. I just know that it is. And so I like we 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 can't do the same things because the the kids aren't going to make it. We had a young man who was our number 2 back in <clears throat> I think it was 2014. He was the number 2 guy as we came through summer. But he was taking 6 AP courses. There's no time in the day to sleep. So he just kept getting worse and worse and worse and didn't make the top seven. He was a number two. He didn't get hurt. He just was out of gas. So like, some of the changes, you know, you, you mentioned rules, but I, I stuck with the training. As we think about rules, I had to be more lenient because I'm, I'm not Mr. Newton. Never will be, never have been. And the, the ethos that he has in, in the world is significantly um, greater than mine. And he could make those demands of parents and kids and, you know, you're out of luck then. But as soon as I, you know, was offered the position, they're like, look, don't don't think you can do the same things. And I'm like, that, yeah, that's fine. And so we have kids who are going to miss practice because they're in a club. You know, they come after they're in this club and they get a little bit running. They don't get the same workout, but they get the opportunity to run. But they're also having that opportunity to become more well-rounded. You know, kids in the math team. We've always had to deal with kids in the band. That was always a point of contention with Mr. Newton and the band director. Kids have to go and visit colleges. Like that wasn't, that wasn't a thing, right? And kids didn't apply to 14 colleges, right? And then start visiting them their sophomore year. They're, they're, you know, I'm going on a college visit. Like, you're not going to go to college for another two and a half years. Like I know, but I'm going to go. I, 
that's what we want. We want kids to go to college. So I'm not going to say no. You have to have verification that you were there and I can call and check. But, you know, we got to go. We, we, they had a one and done or you had, a, you had one grace, one tardy and you had a one unexcused absence. Can't do that. So we're in a little bit more realistic of a three tardy kind of thing. You do get still just one unexcused absence, but the excused absences has expanded. That didn't, <clears throat> that didn't exist. There was no, you know, like you, you just didn't have it. Kids didn't go to a wedding. Like it's your, it's your brother's wedding or something like that. Like you could, sorry, you, you have to be here. So you got to figure out how to get the practice in at 5 a.m. and then go fly to California. Like it just, I, you know, those, I can't make those demands. I don't, I don't feel that they're justifiable. You know, there's, there's just too many things that kids are exposed to, involved with. You know, if you, you didn't really leave your town in the 1970s Elmhurst, not a lot of other options. But we've got families with summer homes and, you know, home in Florida or Arizona. And like, it just, it's just different. I don't, I'm not going to say it's better or worse, but it's, it's certainly different. Yeah. And I grew up in Elmhurst. <clears throat> Mr. Newton was my PE teacher. And my mom still lives in Elmhurst in the house I grew up in. And the demographics have changed dramatically. I think, I mean, if we looked at like the cost of a house has increased dramatically the average income has increased a lot. And so you see just like a whole different type of people now than you did when when I was growing up. And I think, you know, all those houses in that area like Brenhaven, which was they had just two like two story houses were built for families of four. Now we have houses for families of six and seven and eight. And so it's really been changing. And I think with that comes, you know, more competitive college things, you know, it, it, it really is a lot. But Elmhurst is a really good sort of test subject for the, the modern American shift. So we talked with, I want to talk a bit about technology. I see the watch on your wrist, which is like a smart watch, right? And so when we filmed the movie, 2005, it, you know, there is a scene where the twins are on a phone because I think it was the moment where they got their viral infection and they're holding a flip phone which I remember Brady and I being like, oh, these kids have it made. They have phones in high school. And we thought that was such a rare thing. But that thing didn't text. It did text, but nobody really knew how to use it at that time. And it did not use the Internet. It didn't. The, Facebook wasn't born yet. There was no YouTube. None of this stuff existed. But today we have things like tracking, you know, data trackers on your wrist. So you can track the distance of your workout. You can track the, the speed of your workout. And then there's also the social and emotional impact on young people and how that is, you know, permeating every part of school and athletics. So just in general, how has technology shifted your approach to coaching? Yeah. So there's some good things. I, I see my unstable right here. So hopefully this will get it recorded here on the phone. But so technology has changed. There's some really good things associated with technology in that kids are able to find out what other kids are doing athletically, right? They can also find out all these other things as well, but they can find out what kids are doing athletically. And I think that that is the reason 
the primary reason for a boom in athletic performance. I, whoa, like when I was in high school, you would find out, you know, like five days later as stuff was mailed on a Monday and it got to you on a Thursday or a Friday. And you're like, oh, wow, this is what the kids did in New York City. And and sometimes it was almost like too late. Like, like you, the, the delay of, they find out immediately. So, oh, I, if I want to be ranked number two or number one or whatever, like, or they're just finding out that, wait, kids my age can run 402? Or as we've seen, a number of kids breaking four minutes since 2000. <clears throat> like prior to that, Donald Sage almost did it in 2000. But prior to that, there was only four high schoolers who's, who have done it. Now, I want to say like since the year 2000, like when 16 or 17 or what, what like it's crazy how many kids have done it. And I'm, I, I, I believe it is so much to do with like, oh, I see what they're doing over there. And so I got to get back to training. I got to do this. I got to teams, you know, oh, York just did this. Oh, okay. So we got to, we're going next week. And, and so when we go down to Peoria, we want to run faster than what York did. So I, I think that that's a benefit of technology. I, I think the, the detriment of this is that in Mr. Newton's world, he was the authority. There were, weren't other authorities. And so if Mr. Newton said, we're running today, you know, 45, 45, 30 for a two hour run in the morning, and then we come back in the afternoon and run, you know, five miles. Okay, that's what we do. Now, kids looking like, wait, what? And then they, they, you can find somebody say, oh, low mileage is the best plan. And, or you should be doing this, or you should be doing this, or Joe, Joe, you know, whatever, you know, some athlete, this, this is what workout is his favorite workout. Well, how come we don't do that workout? We should do that workout. Like, well, you don't understand why that kid does that particular workout. So there's this inundation of information that now, now kid doesn't know, right? And, and they're on the internet. So this person must be credible. Like, no, like, or this person has uh, worked with X, Y, and Z athletes. Yeah, well, you know what they probably did was they had like an interview with them and it gave them some, you know, one workout advice, whatever. And like, you know, t- Tony is in my group and Sally is in my group. And, you know, like, how are you really credible? So I think that there's a lot of confusion then. And so I get kids like <laughs> on the first day of summer cross, I almost lost it that we ran 30 minutes took a little break and ran 15. And then when they came back in the afternoon, they're going to run three miles. And in between the morning run and the afternoon, there was, what are four hours in between? And the kid's like, wait, that, that's going to be nine miles for today. You're very good at math. That's good counting. Yes. Oh, I can't do nine miles. That's too much mileage. So we had a little talk in the afternoon. I didn't address it there. I was like, guess what? If we're worried that running 30 minutes taking a five to seven minute break with a little water and then going back out there and running 15 minutes. And then you come back again in the afternoon and run three miles, all of which you weren't running fast at all. Guess what? The streak in which York makes it to the state meet all the way since 1963, I think was the last time they didn't make it. That's over. And guess what? The very first time in the history of the school, we won't even make it to the sectional. 
if this is what you're concerned with. Like, you can't count in those same terms. It's spread out over a day. When somebody gives you this warning of like, okay, nine miles a day is like too much, that's because they're looking at it as nine miles continual. Of course I didn't give you nine miles continual. But that's also part of what you have to deal with because you have people who have very little knowledge of training and training methods and what is the goal and how we're trying to achieve this and to see the whole picture, right? And they're just like nine. And they're deer and headlights and like, I, I, I can't do that. So what has, else has changed? People are more worried about getting injured than they are about getting fit. And that's a tough battle to have to wage. No, no, you can, you can do it. And I'm, I'm not as forceful as Mr. Noon, who would be screaming at a kid, get going, right? That's not my personality. I'm like, I, okay, well, I don't know what to tell you. We're just not going to be very good. So if this is where we're going to be, okay, right? that helps me so I can plan my fall so that I'll know that after the regional, at the sectional, I'll just go as a spectator and I'll watch the girls. And then down at the state meet, I'll watch the girls there as well. And, you know, I, I can now start grading papers and going to bed at a decent hour. All right. You know, that's, that's the, the adjustment I'm going to make. Well, because they want to succeed, things changed. Okay. All right. Yes, I can see that this is something that we can manage. And yes, it is something that you can manage. I've been here before. I've seen kids run the 100 miles a week. I did those workouts. I understand that the human capacity for work is far greater than you think it is. There's some Navy SEAL guy who says like, you know, most everybody quits when they still have about 55% left. Like, that's fine. But if you want to be state champions, you can't bow out with 55% left. We've got to figure out a way to get more work in because those kids at other schools, they learned from Mr. Newton. They, they, they read his books. They sat down in his office and talked with him. And they've built their programs and kids are, are, are doing work. They're not doing it off of 30 miles a week. It's just not happening. If you want to get to that highest level. If you don't, just tell me right now. <laughs> we'll make an adjustment. So, Since the movie came out, a lot of coaches and athletes have seen it. And they think they've gotten a little insight into the secrets of Joe Newton. And so I'm assuming, I know that there are coaches that, you know, I see the hashtag coming up, Long Green Line. There's teams all over the country now that have adopted that nickname. And so I'm just wondering, that's just a little anecdotal piece, but what impact have you observed that the movie has had on coaches and athletes outside of York? Yeah, so it's hard for me to assess that. I would imagine that the emphasis on culture would be very prominent seeing how that plays out in the film. But I think that there's other coaches who have been very serious about culture. Mr. Newton is the high school guru here, but we also have the, the college guru in Al Carius, who has had every bit the success or greater on a collegiate level at North Central College. And with having so many athletes come into that program and then they become teachers and coaches. And so they're learning that same kind of thing from him. 
you know, like I'm, I'm guessing because I, I don't, I don't ask the coach at Naperville North, like, hey, what did you get from the film? I just would imagine that because that message is so, so prominent that, you know, you need to care about the kids. This is about kids and their boys. And your job is to try to help them through the medium of athletics to become men. And I, I think that whether you watch that movie or not, as an educator and as a coach, you're, that's what you're trying to do all the time. You're trying to level kids up. And I think it's just very visible, the impact that that has in the film, right? I, I, I think, you know, it really codifies it and like, wow, he, he, here it is right before my very eyes. And so I think that becomes a reminder of what coaches already instinctively know. So Coach Newton was born in 1929. And we observed him, you know, intensely in 2005, which I think he was 76 years old at that point. I'm wondering what, if anything, he wouldn't be able to get away with today. Well, what he wouldn't be able to get away with. I think we have to put into context people and when they were born, what was happening in their formative years, how they're impacted. Like Mr. Newton did not want to, he's a coach. He did not want to be called coach. He wanted to be called Mr. Newton. And he would say it on the first day, like, look, you know, my name is Mr. Newton. Don't call me coach. I don't call you athlete. And that's a product of a bad experience he had with a coach. And now he brings that to where he is. And so what would he not be able to get away with? I think he would embrace being called coach much more so. I, I think he would have checked himself, understanding how powerful and valuable a coach is. And so I, I think he himself wouldn't let himself be called Mr. Newton, that it would be Coach Newton. And that has a greater pathos with that an emotional appeal, I think, to coach than to mister. I mean, any, any guy down the street, you could go, hey, mister, hey, mister. But very few people you get to call coach. And so that may not be exactly what you were thinking with that question, but that was when you put that down, that, that was something that I was thinking of. Like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow himself to get away with being called that. And I think he, he would have been able to distance himself from that experience he had as an athlete and understand how powerful he is as coach. He also grew up in an era where language is, you know, I can walk the halls of York. I can hear every word, right, that is every bit as bad or worse than what he said, right? But as an adult in a community, you can't, you can't say those things, right? You, you need to be above that. And he had, he had colorful language, right? Everybody who knew him, like I'm not revealing something that's a state secret. He, you know, he would let words fly. So I think if he was starting his career at the same time I was starting mine in the 90s or in the 2000s, like, yeah, they, mm, you got to have a different word choice. I also uh, think that some of the the nicknames that he had for kids, some of the phrases that in an era when he grew up, 
city of Chicago has these very distinct neighborhoods. Here's your Italian. Here's your Polish. Here's your whatever. Like he would even say, you know, to some kid who was Polish, like my wife is Polish. And she told me to always take care of the Polish lads and I'm going to. And he would even refer to a kid sometimes as the Polish prince. Um, like, yeah, that doesn't, you know, people are not so tolerant of you know, a references to ethnicity. He was a very smart man, right? He, he, he understood and how, he learned how to navigate the world. I think that if he started coaching in the 1990s, that part of his shtick would, would just be different. It, it, it wouldn't be the same. But I, I think regardless of when he was born, he would not change the, the atmosphere of cross-country and that he would always make it special and make the kids in the program feel special. You know, we, I teach philosophy and we talk about permanence and change. Does anything ever stay the same and what changes? And I think that would be something that would never change for him. Like cross country is special. We are going to treat it in a very special way. That's why when we go to the award ceremony, we're wearing a tuxedo because this is special what you guys just did. You are heroes. And we're we're going to make sure that you stand out some way, somehow, and be honored and rewarded for all this work I gave you. <laughs> and, and now you see the result of that. See, he created a very distinct culture. Chicago is a, its own subculture. Inside of that, Elmhurst is its own subculture. And then York Cross Country is its own subculture inside of all that. And, you know, with technology, like we had, there's the one thing that's in the trailer for the movie and one, it was in like the sample tape where he yells at Nick and he says like, you know, God damn it, if you don't get it, we're going to bench your ass. And I just wonder like, what if there were cell phones or smartphones at the time and somebody was videotaping that and that video went viral? Like, do you think the culture of the team would have the resiliency to withstand the cancel culture of today? No. I'll be honest. No, no, I, I don't. Because while there would be a majority of, of kids who completely understand that, right? Here's a man who is very demanding. He wants success for Nick. Right? And this, this, you know, brief tirade that is just like a passing storm that Oh, okay. He's, he's serious, but there would be people who would not be accepting of that and would make those demands that he needs to be removed. And I, I, I think that that would happen, which is why I went back to earlier saying that he would, he would have figured out how to navigate. He, he could, it's not like he was uncontrollable, right? With his language, Right. He just knew that this is going to reach kids. Uh, and, and I think every adult has used language that they wouldn't use otherwise right, to you know, stress a particular point. And we can say that that's okay or not okay, but it happens. Uh, and so I, I think he would have, all right, I, I see the handwriting on the wall right here. This is, we have to adapt. And, and he would adapt for that. I don't think he would adapt his rules. You know, like one tardy, one unexcused, 
you know, that's it. We're committed because he was very serious about commitment. And so with his own seriousness of commitment, then he would have to change his behavior because he was committed to that program in, in, in a way that was greater than anybody. And I guess rightfully so, because this is, that was his program. And he saw what it could be for a kid and how it could change a kid's life. But I, th- I think he would have he would have changed his language. And I think I feel like the film came out right at the end of the days of analog. You know, the the minimalist cell phones of the time were one thing. But the twins reference that, you know, at the t- at that time, I think there was like two message boards that were kind of like message boards for running. And so that's how people in 2005 kept track of each other. They knew what Jagger was doing and they knew what, you know, so-and-so was doing at this school and that school in New York. And, and it was like, it wasn't immediate, but it at least was, it was the beginning of what this has become. And, you know, there was a lot that happened in the 2005 season. You know, there was the, the fire, which really impacted the whole team. And then the twins were very open and they said they think the main source of their viral infection or their illness at the end of the season was really a stress response of their body because they had been holding on to so many different things, just balancing out, coming back as the number two and three runners in the state and then being the captains of the team and then having two of the top five guys get kicked off who were also their friends. And then, you know, that stress just bottled up. And I know Newton, when... The twins did have that viral infection diagnosis. His main note to the team was, don't let any of that end up on the goddamn internet. And the team was very loyal. But I just don't think today that, I think everything would get leaked. Whether it's somebody's girlfriend that's dating someone on another team or whatever, they might know, you know, they might leak information. So I wonder, have you thought about what 2005 would be in a 2015 technology set? I have not, but as you pose that question, it would have been very different. And I don't know if we could have navigated it the way we did. I I think it could have been a implosive type of thing, you know, as, as it spirals out from, you know, kids in group one or group five or group six, like that. It, it could, could have been very, very different, yes. And even in that span of time, the word great has been changed. And our world has become more and more polarized as our media has become more and more widespread. And, you know, I think about, like, what if the twins had their own Instagram accounts during the film? Like, how much of their day would be occupied just paying attention to that? You know, because I, I, I always know, like, there were girls on other teams that were, like, had crushes on these guys because they saw their picture in the paper. But, like, what if they saw a picture of them every day? That's a whole different relationship that they have to their idol. But but I wonder, like, what 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 what's happening today with kids on the team? Because I'm sure that these other, you know, top athletes have social media accounts and these other kids are kind of tracking them. And then the way that media is getting weaponized, you know, if somebody at, in 2005 had a video of Newton yelling at Nick, they might exploit that to try to get Newton kicked off the team. And so this era of Make America Great, I think, goes along with this era of polarization. And Newton always stuck to his version of great, which was, it's nice to be great, but far greater to be nice. So 
Through today's lens, how does this greatness thing get uh, interpreted? I, I can't really identify where kids might be in some of those polarizing conversations. What we try to create is space here that's a sanctuary from whatever else might be going on in the world, politics, economics, conflict of whatever sort. And that being on this team is something special and you're part of something bigger than you. And we all have a responsibility to maintain it. And if we drop the ball, right, that it will become something that we may eventually be embarrassed that it has become. That we have people who are self-centered, that they have moved away from the model of the, the most important thing is a team. Right? The, the 28 state titles, team, four individuals. I guess that's never been the emphasis. Like trying to find five young men who can do it on the day that matters the most. But inside of that, like how do the kids who are at the top interact with the kids who are at the bottom? And now we all work together. And we have kids on the team who have done a phenomenal job of bringing us together. I've been around many teams, you know, dating back. I have a connection to every team since 1993 to the present. So whatever the math of that is, 28 years or, you know, whatever that is. I'd be hard pressed to find a team that is closer and kinder and more encouraging than this team this year. I'd imagine maybe I missed some things and, and didn't see, but... And there's a couple kids on the team who have made that happen and they don't even know it. We have a young boy on the team, a freshman, who, what year did you graduate? 95. 95. Okay, so Amy LaShawn is, it was Amy Peters. Her son is on the team. I think she graduated 2001, so she's not the same age. And he has multiple physical, mental, but he never has a bad day, his mom says. Eli never has a bad day. And so he's skipping around and doing the workout and running the race. And, and here's a word that I hope would be interpreted the way it should be. Like, there is a love for each other right? that goes from the kid who's at the top to Eli. And I think Eli is like almost like a, a lightning rod for that. He's never going to finish first. He's almost always going to be last. But since he was in fourth grade, his mom's been dreaming about him running for York, like and being on the cross country team and earning that uniform. Because of, you know, the freshmen have to run their first race wearing their PE uniform. And then they earn it by running the course, they earn that right to get that uniform. He did. He earned it. It took him, whatever, 26, seven minutes to run the two miles, but he did it. And the joy on everybody's face, like this little guy right here who just kind of smiles and he giggles and laughs and, hey, I think he's helped us to become or 
he's brought out in us kindness. And in a polarized world, I know that I'm going to go to practice and I'm going to feel good about being a human being. We might have a, a good practice. We might have a bad practice. It might be a practice that get, gets canceled halfway through because of lightning. But I'm watching and witnessing human beings. That freshman team, as they rally around that kid, and it's one of the smallest freshman teams and ever. Like There's only 23, four kids on the, that are freshmen on the team. But as they rally around that little guy, it's nice to be great, far greater to be nice. And, and I think we also try to be both. You can, you can be both. You can be a great athlete and be a decent human being, a, a great human being. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be, hey, me, me, I, I, all that kind of stuff. Like, I had to name captains because the athletic director, oh, we were captains because we had a pep rally. <laughs> so I finally told him, here, here are these two guys. But I haven't, I haven't announced anybody as captain. They're all captains, right? They're all great kids and encouraging each other. I, I don't know. I, I can put my head down at night and feel good about it. I think it, there, there's been times where it's been tough for me to, to fall asleep because I'm concerned about where some of the kids on the team are going to end up. And I, I just smile a lot this year. It's, it's been very fulfilling. I, I, I feel fulfilled. I would love to finish that off with getting one of those trophies because there's that to the history of York. And wanting those kids to have that experience of hoisting a trophy and the tuxedos and the parade. But at the end of the day, right, you could be a state champion, but a total jerk. I'd rather it be the other way around. Yeah, we didn't win, but you know what? I, I go to battle. I go, I do anything for, for these kids. And so, so, you know, lately in education, I think, especially in the last like year and a half, diversity has become such a centerpiece. And so DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion are sort of the buzzwords. And I was sent an essay that was written by a sociologist at like University of Kansas. And she had seen the movie. Her son was similar to Eli and, and joined cross country. I think he's in fourth or fifth grade. And so she watched the movie with him and she was moved by it. And she wrote this essay that basically explains it better than I ever thought of it. And she pointed out how inclusive Coach Newton always was. Inclusion was never his weakness. And, you know, he had John Fisher on the team. He had Connor Chadwick on the team. Now Elijah's on the team. So there is this culture of inclusivity. And I wonder what role you feel that plays in the school. And I think you kind of already answered that. But I think, you know, just with that very specific language, I wonder what it sounds like for you today. we got a place for everybody. Right. And what's beautiful about it is that he would not get on the field of competition in volleyball, basketball, baseball, <laughs> football. Like we just go down the line. But if you give an effort, you persevere, you went across the same terrain. You went over that hill. You went around that corner. You know, if you're at Catherine Leggy in, in, in Hinsdale, you, you went across the creek and you got to the finish line. You, you get to do the exact same thing, right? As the person who wins the race, who might be, you know, all conference 
all regional, all sectional, all state, could be the state champion. You get to follow, right? You get to run the same path. And I, I think that is part of the inclusivity that, that you do the same thing. Now, he might not run as much mileage, but he's out there. If it's a 30-minute run, he's out running around for 30 minutes. Doesn't cover the same distance, but he did it. I bought a tool this year. I bought a gong. And so in the Navy SEAL program, there in the middle is a bell. Like when you quit, you got to go over there and you have to ring that bell. Like it's public. Everybody knows. And it's a shameful thing. You drop your head and you ring that bell and you're out. And there's probably more to it in that they know that that's shameful. So they, you are encouraged to not get to that point and ring that bell. I, I don't like the negative side of it, what it seems to be. So I bought a gong. You finish the workout, you have to do the entirety of the workout and you can hit that gong. And now nah, I wasn't going to tell anybody because I didn't want anybody else to know about this. So maybe you can cut that out. Right. But it is amazing. Kids were like, oh, I want to, you know, is it? Well, I, I, you know, that's okay, but you can't ring the gong now. You, you can't bang that gong. Well, I, I, I'm going to go. I don't know if I can go as fast. Then good. Get out there and go. But you are going to quit. But because of that gong, now you've got something. Eli gets to hit the gong. They all get to hit the gong. You do the workout, you get to hit the gong. And some kids, little tap of it. Like, <laughs> like they, they, yes, I did this workout. There's the same thing internal feelings for our number one guy is Ethan Summer. We'll see what happens. He's certainly a top five candidate. Things go well. He Maybe he wins it, the state championship. Maybe he finishes seventh. But he goes through that same like sense of accomplishment. I did like ding, one through whoever our last guy is. They're all included. You do this, you get to do that. You get to be part of this team. You're going to get to say, if they can win a state championship, if they're second, if they're fifth, like you're part of the fifth best team, the second best team in the state of Illinois. That's cool. If we could win the state championship, you're probably going to say that that is like um, a team that's in the top 10 in the country, right? That, that, that's probably pretty fair. Like how many times in your life are you going to be able to say you're top 10 in the United States in anything? So we all have to work together to try to make that eventuality, whether it's, you know, we win, we finish third, second, whatever. Like we are all in this together. And I think they've really bought into this year that, yes, we're all in this together. And so Eli will be able to say, I am a member of the X place team in the state of Illinois or ranked in the United States. That's cool. And so let's get to work, right? Because it's going to take a lot of work, but it's worth it. That short period of time, because there's probably not going to be another space in your life where you're going to be able to say that. So let's put the work in right now, you know, and, and will my life peak and end? No, it'll just go in a different direction. But it's just because this is that special time where you could say, here we are, number whatever in Illinois, number what in, in ever in the United States. Let's go to work, all of us together. It's been fun. Been a fun year. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about love in this all-male team that we've been documenting for years. And I'm wondering how love, you know, and love is not a commonly masculine term. 
how has this era of sort of toxic masculinity met with this tender, loving care, your cross-country team? Love is a term that in, in a lot of ways can be perverted. I, I think they've done a really good job of understanding what brotherly love is. You don't have to like everybody. That's probably not realistic on a team of 100 kids. But you do have to love them and you do have to give them the respect that they're due as another human being. Even if they have a political belief that's different than you, even if they have a, an ethnicity or identifier, right, that might be different than, you know, a binary world of male and female. Like th those are, are, are things that can divide, right? And we're trying, right? They're still teenagers. Uh, so no one is going to be perfect in all of this, but trying to help them to understand that I deserve to be respected and you deserve to be respected. And we may disagree about some things, but at the end, you know, trying to bring back that we all wear green. That, that happens to be our, our marker, right? These dukes and, and our color is green. And we're in this together. And I think as cross-country runners, having been one myself, coached, you, you see who comes out. And a lot of the kids who come out are kids who couldn't make it in some other sport. And, you know, well, I guess I, everybody runs. I guess if I just keep working, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do this right here and maybe I can get to become a pretty good runner. There's no week-long extravaganza for cross-country like we just finished, right? All culminating with football, right? That homecoming is not for cross country. It's, it's for football. Like what, what gets the greatest amount of, of feedback? It's football, right? And that, that's, I, I understand. So for us, since we are not, you know, high up on that, you know, mountain of what is deemed important, all the more so we should be rallying around each other and supporting each other because we there's enough of that even though it's york and 28 state titles like they're still teenagers and like you're a nerdy cross-country kid so we cannot do that to each other that we need to build up and we need to edify you know we need to build each other up and and help you know each other in, in, the, in a very difficult sport like i mean the joke is it's your sports punishment <laughs> it is difficult but in going through these difficult things, I now am equipped to handle other difficult things. So I don't know if I really answered that question or not. But no, I think, like, yeah. I, I think, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, saying the word love, but I, I see it in the actions, right? My favorite phrase is talk is cheap, dirt is free, don't tell me, show me. And we get to see that, you know, Kids going over and talking to other kids who, you know, didn't have a good race, are struggling, right? Dealing with injuries, right? And the kid calls them up on the phone. It's okay. We're going to be all right. Hey, don't stop coming around. Like, that's love. That you care for somebody and don't let them spin out of orbit over here. And then we know how it goes. When you're out there by yourself, you start to think stupid, crazy thoughts that are irrational, like, you know, no, no, come back here. Like, you're not letting us down. This happens. Come back and be part of what we're going to do.
And I guess I got one final question. You know, they say that the influence of a teacher is eternal and you never know when that influence is going to stop. And I feel like Elijah is a great story that exemplifies, you know, the efforts that Coach Newton did in 2005 to be very inclusive, to keep Connor and John Fisher and all these kids who weren't the, the most able-bodied men to, to join the team and made them feel very included in the program. So beyond just, I mean, that example, where else do you see this eternal impact of Coach Newton? And I think maybe it's beyond York and maybe even in the greater, you know, cross-country culture worldwide. So where do you see the eternal influence of Newton today and where do you think it's going to continue to go? I think he certainly preached be the best version of yourself and, and, and maybe not have said it in those terms, but that's been passed to me and then now it's my opportunity. And so though that, that's the, the verbiage I use. Let's, let's be the best version of ourselves, And I think that that's, you know, certainly part of his legacy. I think part of his legacy is the pursuit. We don't always get there, but that pursuit of excellence, like that we're, we're continually trying. Right, okay, today's a new day. Yeah, the workout yesterday didn't go so well. The race last week didn't go so well. All right, but well, we got another opportunity right now. And so I think uh, the pursuit of excellence has, has, is part of his legacy. Yeah, there, there's, he's done so much that he has just embedded culture that you, you have to almost like start to look through. To, oh yeah, this is a, a remnant of Mr. Newton. I think caring, the personal touch that he tried to instill to make a person feel important, to say their name every day, to give them a nickname so that there was something special between them and and him. So I'm not a copycat. I haven't done that. But I think that that's a great, great thing to do with kids. Like that this is my personal connection with you that you and I have this name, nickname. Like, as I mentioned in the beginning of this right here, his manager, Curtis, I, no one else was able to call him Curtis. His name is Kurt Rubin. Nobody calls him Curtis. And he would not tolerate anyone calling him Curtis. I'm Kurt Rubin to everyone else, but to Mr. Newton, I'm Curtis. And that's special. And what is his legacy? And making people feel special. And I, I don't think that that should just be universal to him. I think we should all be doing that. Like when I'm having a conversation with someone and I don't bring the stupid phone out, how do I make someone feel special? If while we're talking like, hey, ho, ho, yeah, uh-huh, oh, yeah, uh-huh. Like that's divided attention. I want to give you undivided attention. And when I give you undivided attention, I've given you the most valuable thing, period. The most valuable commodity, and that's time. He gave time. And I'm a very tired man. I don't sleep enough because I'm trying to give time to these students that are in my class. I'm trying to give time to my colleagues whenever I can, and certainly to the kids on the cross-country team. That's interesting because I, I always, you know, explain to my students that attention and time are are two things that are the words that we use to describe them are financial words. We pay attention and we spend time. 
And when you put it in that context, you see how valuable these personal relationships are and how much investment Mr. Newton gave his athletes. And sometimes that attention transaction happened by just saying your name. So, hey, Curtis, come here, Curtis, go, go upstairs, come here, give me a Fanta Orange. And just because he said Curtis, Curtis will go and run, run the, all the way up there to complete the task. And so I think it's so nice to revisit this man and this story because there's so much value even today. And it's, it feels like it's becoming more and more valuable as we start to get further and further away from, you know, the here and now. And the reward of being present with someone is, is not as valuable as it used to be. I think, I'm sure that as we get deeper into this, people are going to have questions that they want to follow up with. And we may be able to get a Charlie Kern part two in somewhere down the line. Because there's so much more to talk about. Your family, your kids, you running with kids, are you, that you're still running with them. Just the evolution of the program, the modernization of this thing. Like I was so confused when I visited your camp that you had a laptop out there. That thing just seemed so foreign to me in that environment. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and spend some time paying attention to this story. It's really valuable and I think it's really great to see you and to see all the success you've had with the team. And I wish you so much more success in your time at York and your personal career and your team career. But again, good luck with this season. I know you said you had 10 meets and or five meets in 10 days. Yeah, I did. Are you, in the, are you finished with that? Are you in the middle of that? We made it through, yeah. Um, I survived, I'm still here and uh, now we're in the home stretch. There's only two more meets for the majority of the team. Um, we've got to meet this Thursday, conference in two week, in 19 days to be exact. And uh, yeah, that's it for them. And then we move into championship and let's see what the top guys can do. And was there a shortened season this year because of COVID or was it pretty much normal? Ah, it was gorgeous. Full on season, all invites. So I'm very grateful to that all those kids got those experiences awesome so thanks again everyone for listening please like subscribe to this podcast we want uh, to share the word of this uh, influ influential positive american coaching story thanks again to charlie kern for joining us this is the long green line podcast i'm maddie arnold your host and we'll talk to you next time i hope you enjoyed listening to the long green line podcast Please subscribe, comment, and share these episodes with your friends. Every time you engage with our podcast, more listeners are able to find us. Thanks again to Charlie Kern for sitting down and talking to us. You can find out more about Charlie and his running camps at ckrunning.com. Stay tuned next time, where we're going to be sitting down with Kyle Whitland, who is the composer on The Long Green Line. You can find us at www.longgreenlinemovie.com.